0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 5 again. Today, with God's help, we will be finishing uh, this chapter, uh, looking again at another familiar passage, uh, this parable of the wineskins. But I want to point out, as you're turning there to Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, again, how the Lord and His providence has worked out uh, that we have been reading uh, through Isaiah. And I hope you noticed how wonderfully... Uh, it fits with what we're about to read here. The Lord calling to his people in Isaiah for drawing near to him in form only, but not in substance. Drawing near to him with outward fasts and rituals, but not drawing near to him in heart. And that's some of what we're going to see here today as Jesus is asked this question about fasting. But today we're reading Luke chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 33. Verse 33 and study through the end of verse 39. You can find that, if you've not already, on page 861 of our ESVs. Before we turn to the Lord's Word, please join me uh, in seeking his blessing upon uh, this reading. Let's pray. O gracious Lord God, we are weak and frail and always in need of your help and your wisdom, and you have promised that to all who call upon you and ask for wisdom, you will give it unbegrudgingly. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us not only a wisdom to read and to understand your word, but give us a wisdom to put it into practice in our lives. I pray that you would give us that experiential wisdom that comes only by your Holy Spirit leading us and directing our hearts and our hands and our feet after you, that we should walk with you in holiness and in truth. Gracious Lord, make it so in the lives of your people today. As we read your word, expose sin, bind up the brokenhearted. And draw us after yourself with cords of love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. send is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing uh, to its reading and to its hearing. I think it is part of the infinite and glorious wisdom of the Lord. We do not open our Bibles and find anywhere in its pages a physical description of what Jesus looked like. Much as many many artists would love, uh, to have something like that, to know the color of eyes that he has, or maybe how tall he is, or maybe whether he has dimples, or whether his, his mouth curves in just a particular way when he smiles. We don't find that. We don't find such a description in the pages of Scripture. The closest we get to a physical description of Jesus is the vision that uh, John had on the island of Patmos. Well, that really isn't so much a description of what Jesus looked like so much as it is a description of what he is like. And so he tells us that Jesus is the ancient of days, the one who has hair like wool. We find that Jesus is the all-seeing judge, and so he is the one with eyes like fire. He is the one whose ways are pure and perfect, and so even his feet are as bronze, burnished and refined in a fire. And we find throughout Scripture not just Uh, in uh, the Revelation, but also throughout the rest of the pages, some more descriptors, a few standout features, not of what Jesus looked like, but what Jesus is like. And everywhere he went, people noticed things about him, and there was something different about Jesus, and they noticed the way that he spoke like no one else, and they were amazed. They noticed the way that he assumed authority for himself. He walked into the temple and he drove out people that were changing money there as though he owned the place. And they noticed that sort of thing. And they noticed his compassion on the weak and the hurting. And they also noticed the way that Jesus was always celebrating. That was one of the things that stood out about Jesus. That was one of the features that people saw about him. And it stood out because it was so unlike what they were used to seeing from all those really religious people, all the rabbis that they knew, you'd be uh, forgiven for thinking that the rabbis of Jesus' day were somewhat morose. Maybe uh, a little bit austere and serious, but that's not what people said about Jesus. He was serious, he wasn't, he wasn't flippant, but he did celebrate in a way that other religious leaders seemed not to celebrate. Jesus ate with sinners, and not only did he eat with them, but he feasted with them. He feasted with all kinds of people, actually. In fact, in in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, we'll find that Jesus also went, when he was invited, to the home of Pharisees. And so whether he's with tax collectors or whether he's with Pharisees, it seems that Jesus is always eating and drinking, that he and his disciples are always celebrating, and that's something that the people noticed about him. And just like many of the other things that Jesus did, when he feasted, it caused a controversy. He can't even go to a banquet without somebody questioning what's going on. And so Jesus feasts, and there's a controversy. And like so many of the controversies that surround Jesus, Jesus used it to talk about himself. You notice that underlying theme in Jesus' ministry. He didn't come to get people to put on some new religious habit. He didn't come just so you could have some new theological outlook on the world and so your, your spiritual brain could get really big. Jesus came because he wanted to show people who he was and what he was like so that you would draw near to him in truth not just outwardly. And at every turn, he's pressing his followers and his observers to consider him, to get closer to him, to know more of him. And that's the point of the response that he has when people ask him about feasting. Why is it, they said, are you and your disciples always celebrating so much? And Jesus' response is all about the difference that he makes in the lives of his people. I think there are two lessons that we need to learn our passage today. The first one has to do with the joy uh, that Jesus brings, and the second is the system that Jesus replaces. So two lessons, the joy that Jesus brings and the system that Jesus replaces. Let's begin with the joy. Now, this controversy starts not with a question as it does in, in, uh, in the way that Matthew and Mark record it, but simply, uh, simply an observation. Not necessarily somebody coming and, and calling Jesus to account, but just noticing This is different about Jesus. It merely says in verse 33, they said to him, Bare statement, observation, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink, and and the underlying assumption is what gives? Why is it so different with you and your disciples? Now, there is an important clue here in this context. You know that uh, sometimes, even in the way that whether it's a question or an observation, sometimes. Different gospel writers will approach things a little bit differently. Sometimes they will group Jesus' teaching thematically rather than chronologically. So Jesus' sermons might show up in a different order in the different gospel accounts, and and this miracle might happen over here, whereas in Mark it might happen over there. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptics, when they record this account, this historical uh, conversation that Jesus had, it all shows up right here. Every time, immediately after this banquet that Levi had, there is something about Jesus' presence at a tax collector's barbecue that raises questions in the minds of the people that are around him. Specifically, it raises two questions. The first we looked at last week, and the question was, what is Jesus and his disciples, what are they doing hanging out with these lowlifes? But Then the second question was, what are they doing celebrating at all? I mean, like, with anybody. What is there to be so excited about what is there to be uh, celebrating about, and there is a connection between these two, and the connection comes at the end of verse 32. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners the issue. Jesus is talking about repentance. He's talking about turning from a life of sin into a life of holiness, and if anyone knew what repentance was supposed to look like, It was the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees. Their whole lives were were built around showing what repentance was supposed to look like. For John, it was a good thing. He had a ministry of preparation, and Luke tells us in chapter 3 that John went out into the region around the Jordan. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance, he was getting people ready for the coming of Jesus. And so you have all of these disciples of John and they followed him out in the wilderness and he's this wild man who's casting off all the pleasures of life and he's wearing these scratchy clothes and he's eating locusts and wild honey and he seems to have uh, this repentance coupled with asceticism and bodily rigor and that's what it looks like to be really repentant. You fast and you, you leave the pleasures of life. Now, for all the bad press that they get, the, the Pharisees actually knew a thing or two about repentance as well. That's because they knew a lot about the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. That became part of their condemnation later. When they would challenge Jesus, he would simply turn to them and say, haven't you read what is said? of course they've read. They knew what the prophets had said. They knew what the prophets had said about repentance. They knew what Joel had said. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. (coughs) Excuse me. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. But that is what the people thought repentance was supposed to look like. It was supposed to look like a funeral procession. It looked like weeping eyes and mourning hearts and faces that were drawn because you were so hungry, because you were giving up the pleasures of life. Here's how Kent Hughes puts it, especially in regard to the Pharisees. He says the overall effect was to view true religion as solemn and joyless and gloomy. And the supposition was that you could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. And there sits Jesus and all of his disciples, and they are hobnobbing it with degenerates and preaching about turning from sin and repentance, and it simply doesn't compute. They don't understand how you could be repentant and rejoicing at the same time. It just didn't make any sense. Repentance, when Jesus showed up and preached about it and, and engaged in drawing people into it, it didn't look like what they were used to. But notice Jesus' response. They ask him uh, about a particular religious ritual. And his answer is to consider him and the joy that he brings. Take a look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Notice that this is an argument from propriety. Jesus is not saying uh, that fasting is wrong. He's simply saying that in this situation, it's improper. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, well, my disciples don't fast because there's no use for fasting. Nobody wants to fast. Jesus fasted. He began his whole ministry with 40 days of fasting. In the Old Testament, there was a fast proclaimed every year on the Day of Atonement. And so Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. We know that with the rest of Israel, he fasted at least one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He even says here that there is a day coming when fasting will be the appropriate response. And the bridegroom is taken away. And he's, he's pointing to his death. There's a violence here, taken away. When the bridegroom is taken, then they will mourn and, and the disciples will fast and mourn and it will be a sad time. And I think there's some carryover even now. The Lord gives us direction in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, he says. And so he's not saying that fasting is wrong, but he is saying that because he's here, things have changed. Right now, he says, while I'm here and with my people, fasting is improper. No, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. Now this actually is the first of three parables that Jesus tells in this passage. Later he'll talk about garments and he'll talk about wineskins, and it tells us that those are parables, but this is a parable too. He's using something that everybody knew about to teach a spiritual truth, and everybody knew about the joy of a wedding. In Israel there was uh, perhaps no other ceremony quite as joyous as a wedding. A wedding was a public thing. It wasn't just, you know, when you're, you're throwing a wedding, maybe uh, you haven't gotten there yet, but trust me, one of the most agonizing things is who do you invite? And especially if your parents are helping you to pay for it, uh, who do you need to invite that you wouldn't want to invite, but they need to invite to show, and, and it's just a mess. It's a terrible mess because it's this closed-off thing, but not in Israel. It was a public thing. There was a bride, and there was a groom, and they were in a village, and everybody came, and the party could last up to a week. And celebration was compulsory. You came and you celebrated and you shared in the joy of of newfound marriage covenant. And everybody understood. You know, weddings also come with rules. Not just joy, but they come with rules. And we have rules in weddings now. When the bride comes down the aisle, everybody stands, right? And if you're not the one getting married, you don't wear a white dress. Everybody understands there are rules of wedding etiquette. And in In Jerusalem, in Israel at that time, the first rule of wedding etiquette was, you do not act at a wedding the way you act at a funeral. It is not the time uh, for being uh, drawn and gaunt and sad and gloomy. One of the rabbis even taught, he said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. And that means that even the Pharisees, even those who prided themselves in fasting two days a week, every Monday, every Thursday, rain or shine, even the Pharisees were to put that away. Why? Because they were at a wedding. And you know how you act at a wedding. You act happy. And you celebrate. And if you give them a card, it's not a condolence card. You give them a, we're so happy that you're together card. And this is the way that you act at a wedding. And everybody knew it, that celebration wasn't an option. Now, uh, that's a, a... an easy enough parable to grasp and everybody knows how weddings work but the significant thing is what Jesus is saying about himself he's making a claim here, he's not just telling us about weddings, he's telling us about the bridegroom just as it would be improper to serve as a groomsman with a somber face so it would be improper to experience Jesus' ministry with gloom and mourning and resignation and it all has to do with who Jesus is Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's come to redeem his wayward bride. He is the Savior who cleanses his people, and he unites them to himself in a covenant that is closer than marriage. And you're used to this language. If you've read the Scripture, you're used to finding this all over the place, through the prophets especially. You're used to finding it in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. But later, uh, Paul says that Christ is the one who loved the church. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We're familiar with this language. Christ is the bridegroom and, and his church is his bride and he unites her to himself in splendor. Think of that sparkling white wedding dress. It's a picture of the purity of the church. We're familiar with this, but perhaps... Nowhere is this image so clear as in the book of Hosea. i want to ask you to turn there with me. You're familiar with Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who was called by the Lord. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea was a prophet called by the Lord to do something that seemed very strange, to go and to marry a wife of impurity, a wife of prostitution and immorality. And it became another parable for Israel the way the Lord draws an impure people to himself. And in Hosea chapter 3, we find this parable teaching us about what repentance is supposed to look like, whether it's supposed to be gloomy and sad and something that looks like a funeral, or whether it's something that ought to look like a wedding celebration. Take a look in Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lecteth of barley, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. And here is the point. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Do you see what, what Hosea is giving the people? A picture of repentance, a picture of restitution, and a picture of Redemption. He is promising that a day is coming when sinners will be redeemed. There's a day coming when great David's greater son will rule and reign over the people, and they will come in fear to God's goodness, and it will be a celebration. And that's what repentance is supposed to look like. And the difference all revolves on whether or not the groom is here. So we learn something, I think, in this passage in Luke about about the joy that Jesus brings. It teaches us that life with Jesus is worth celebrating. The disciples uh, of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, are acting about this, asking about this practice, and Jesus is telling them about his person because that's what makes the difference in the lives of his people. Those who are the bride, those who have been redeemed, those who have come to the Lord in repentance and, and seen him and been cleansed by his blood, those are the ones who have something to be joyous about and joyous in a way that that doesn't depend on merely outward circumstances. Here's how Martin Luther put it. Martin Luther said a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. And if he isn't, the devil is tempting him. Now, Luther is a provocative guy. Uh, That's a pretty provocative statement. But consider the implications of what he's saying. He's not just saying that your spiritual life has to be happy and, and and flitter flighty all the time and, and just sunshine and roses. He's not saying that the spiritual life will look like that, but compare the kind of cheerfulness that Luther had in mind with the kind of cheerfulness that the world just lusts after. A kind of cheerfulness and a happiness that's completely bound up on the things that we're experiencing externally. I'm doing well when life is going well. My job is good. My kids are obedient most of the time, and so I guess things are okay. And the unbelieving world lives for happiness and joy in external circumstances because that's all the unbelieving world has. External circumstances. But the believer has something more, something deeper. The believer has a deep and an abiding joy of reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The believer has a joy that is able to look full in the face of affliction and adversity and indwelling sin and say, yet I know that God is for me, and if God be for us, who can be against us? And if that is the bedrock foundation of your life, how could you possibly mourn and wail over your circumstance, no matter how bad it is? I don't mean to make light of anyone's circumstance in this room. We all come in to this this room week after week, and some of us bear the burdens of a life Filled with affliction. I don't mean to make light of that. But if we truly believe that because of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to the father. That he who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. Will also give us all things necessary in him. How can we possibly live our lives full of mourning and gloom? Ought not we to be cheerful? He says with a somber face. There is another passage in Romans, chapter 14. If you've talked to one of our elders, uh, I would bet he has quoted it to you. Romans 14, verse 17, Paul writes, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a progression there. Righteousness, peace, and joy. There's a progression because that's the order in which we experience them. Jesus Christ has come in righteousness, fully uh, completing and fulfilling the law of God, perfect righteousness, and he gives that righteousness to those he calls to himself, and that righteousness gives us peace and reconciliation with the Father. When the Holy Spirit assures us that we are reconciled, he gives us a joy that is far deeper than our external circumstances, this kind of cheerfulness that Luther is talking about. And so I think he's right. If a Christian is not marked, by some deep and abiding celebratory cheerfulness. And we're being tempted to forget that the righteousness of Christ has given us peace with God. Again, this doesn't mean we will never face sorrow. Jesus did tell his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, here's how you ought to fast, because he knew that in the lives that we live, we will face affliction and hardship and in sorrow. But, don't miss the point that life with Jesus is worth celebrating. Jesus is reminding us that if we've been joined to the bridegroom, we have something to rejoice about. We have redemption and remission of sins. There is a joy that permeates the life of the believer that's deeper than circumstances, deeper than sin, deeper than religious observances that might sometimes be the appropriate time and the appropriate thing at just the right time. And so we learn here that Jesus brings joy, and it's all about who he is. It's all about being joined to the bridegroom, that he is the substance of all our joy, no matter what our external circumstances might be. So we've seen the joy that Jesus brings, but secondly, I want to ask you to consider uh, the system that Jesus replaces. Now, in the next two parables, beginning in verse 36, in the next two parables, Jesus tells us there are some situations where it is terribly foolish to mix what is old with what is new. Verse 36, he told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And both of these parables represent what Dale Ralph Davis calls a double stupidity. Nobody would do this because harm moves in both directions if you were to do these things. Mixing old and new together is sometimes bad for what is old and bad for what is new. You know, I have these two shirts that I just love. They are my favorite dress shirts. And I bought them around the time that I was married, which means that they're well over a dozen years old. And it's, it's to the point, it, the fact is, I, I love them. I, I, I wish the problem uh, with these shirts is that they don't make them this way anymore. They change the formula. They outsource it. They did something. You can't buy them. Uh, and uh, But they're great. They, they, have, they have that extra hem behind the button, uh, button row. Uh, they, they're, they're nice, sturdy, wrinkle-free fabric. I love these shirts, but I'm at the point where I really shouldn't wear them in public anymore because the, the creases on the edges are gone from from dark blue to white, and some of the threads are literally falling apart. And Jesus is reminding us in verse 36 that it would be really foolish for me to go out and buy a brand-new replacement shirt, just to bring it home and cut it up to patch that old shirt. Nobody does that. It would be a waste of both things. It would be a waste of a perfectly good brand new shirt, and the patches wouldn't even match the old anyway, and I would look ridiculous, even more ridiculous than wearing a threadbare shirt. And so there are some situations, it's a double stupidity. Nobody does that. You've got a new shirt, just wear the new shirt. Some things should be replaced rather than mixed. Same thing goes with wine. At this time, you probably know, uh, people stored their wine in the sewn-up skins of animals. Sounds gross. But that's what they did, and it was a leather bag that was made of the body of a goat or a sheep, and it worked pretty well. And it worked really well if you put new wine that was still fermenting, still, uh, still off-gassing and, and, and putting off all those, uh, that CO2, and you put it in a fresh skin that had some elasticity in it. But the problem with leather is that leather is like a pasture. The longer it's around, it gets sort of brittle. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and so if you put new, fermenting wine that is trying to grow and expand in an old leather bag, well, it's going to break, and it's going to be a double shame. You're neither going to have something to drink, nor will you have anywhere to store it, and so you lose both. The skins are ruined, he says, and the wine is wasted. Now, again, on the surface, this is easy to understand what Jesus is saying with these parables but Jesus is teaching spiritual truth with, uh, with common pictures and the point of these parables is that because Jesus has come the old way of doing religion is ready to be replaced the point of the parables comes in verse 38 new wine must be put into fresh wineskins Jesus is telling us that he's come with something new He's come to bring God's new covenant with his people. He's come to bring a saving relationship between the sovereign creator of the world and sinners that he's calling to himself. Now, in a sense, it's not new. It's not totally different. That's why Jesus doesn't give the analogy of replacing a shirt with an umbrella or replacing wine with motor oil. It's the same thing. It's just new. God has always been calling sinners to himself. He's always been calling his covenant people to come to him in faith and repentance. And Abraham is our father because he was the man of faith. He's always been calling his people to rend their hearts and not their garments. But now that Jesus is here, there is a new fullness to what the Lord is doing. There is a newness to his covenant reconciling work with his people. And Jesus is saying that the crowds can't expect simply to cram the joy of knowing Jesus into all the old religious molds they've already got close at hand. It doesn't work that way. It's a a double shame, and and harm would go in both directions. We could put it another way. We could say that in Jesus, the substance of the gospel has now replaced the system of the law. There is a system that Jesus has come to replace. And in Jesus, the substance of the gospel has replaced the system of the law. Turn again with me, this time uh, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to pick up this chapter in verse 7, where the Apostle is telling us about the newness of the covenant that Jesus has brought. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, if there was nothing wrong with it, if there was nothing lacking in it, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds." And I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old? is ready to vanish away. And so Jesus says, new wine, the new covenant, must be put into new wineskins. This is the newness that Jesus is speaking of. The law had been pointing to Christ and pointing to Christ and pointing to Christ through signs and through shadows and through types, all of the things that we find in the Old Testament. It's been pointing in the direction of Jesus, but now the bridegroom is here. And because he's come, everything is changed, and the new has come, the old is gone. It's time to usher in a new era. This is an incredible thing that Jesus is saying to his Jewish audience. And I realize that at this distance, we seem to miss some of the the newness of what Jesus is doing, because we've now been living in the reality of the new covenant for 2,000 years. I've been living in it for 35 years. But you get what I'm saying, and and we're removed from this, and we misunderstand how incredible and how radical this is. Jesus is saying, why do my people not fast the way your people fast? Because everything's different because I'm here. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. The bridegroom has come. The Savior's been revealed. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, reveals the grace of God for sinners. And the proper response to Jesus is to receive him, without trusting in the old ways of righteousness through ritual. And that means something, even for us. Even separated as we are from the people who first asked this question of Jesus, it means something for us that all these things are changed. I think it means that at least two ways of approaching God are ruled out. Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast like the disciples of John the Baptist, or the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, in that two, those two categories, are represented two very different ways of fasting, two very different ways of approaching the Lord. Think about the disciples of John. They were at least on the right track. They were fasting as an expression of true spiritual longing. John's whole ministry was a ministry of preparation. He, too, like the Old Covenant, was pointing to Jesus, There's one who will come and I'm getting ready for him and he's calling people to repentance and he's calling them to rituals that express what repentance is and a casting off of the old and a depending upon the Lord. But once Jesus came, John told his disciples to stop following him and start following Jesus. The time for longing is over because Jesus has come. John chapter 3. John says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and he must increase, and I must decrease. John is saying the time of longing is over. And that means it is the wrong approach to hear the news of Jesus Christ and to continue to live as though God has not provided a way of salvation. It's the wrong approach to hear the message of Jesus That he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then to sit on your spiritual hands and yearn and pine and wonder if there's anything that can be done with the guilt of your sin. When Jesus says that new wine must be put into new wineskins, it is an invitation to all who will come and drink to take part in the celebration of the one who has come, to receive him with everlasting joy in the peace of God. The new wine of the gospel puts an end to spiritual longing. But the new wine of the gospel also puts an end to spiritual pride. This is the other kind of fasting that we see represented among the Pharisees in this passage. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Why? Because they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Are they drawing near to the Lord in truth? No drawing near to everybody else who will look at them and say, wow, they're fasting. They're very serious. In fact, the Pharisees at this time would would we'd call it a cosmetic today, but it, it was sort of a whitewash that would make their faces look very uh, drawn from color and white and, and pale and they'd stand on the street corners and you'd see them there and they'd be, oh, they'd be so morose. And what's wrong with them? Oh, it's Thursday. They're fasting. They're very serious. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says. There's a way of approaching the Lord through ritual that's ritual—that's really just about spiritual pride. And don't forget what uh, the Pharisee prayed in the temple, Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like that tax collector. Why? Because I fast twice a week. It's a source of spiritual pride. Fasting for the Pharisees was a means of of puffing up and of showing off their sense of righteousness before men. And Jesus says it's time to replace those things. The bridegroom has come. And we can trace it all the way back to verse 32, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. The time is here to come as a vessel of humility, to be pliable, to be flexible to the call of repentance, not to be rigid and hardened by self-righteousness. And so the new wine of the gospel puts an end to spiritual longing and it puts an end to spiritual pride, but the shame of it all is that many will refuse to taste what Jesus has to offer. Now The thing about old wine is that it's easy to drink. I'm no connoisseur, uh, but on a few occasions I've been invited to a party and wine that was almost as old as I am was served, and man, it was good. And we take that and we import it into this understanding here. Jesus is not talking about connoisseurs of wine. He's simply saying the reality is that many will be so accustomed to what is old that they won't even want to try what is new. Verse 39, no one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. You know, the old wine is smooth and comfortable, and the old wine of thinking that we can do for ourselves what God might leave undone is what is most palatable to us. But Jesus is saying that many will never know the joy of Jesus because they think that what they've already got is good enough. Maybe the longing that you're holding on to. Oh, no, 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 I have to long, and I have to long, and I have to, long, and I have to prove by how strongly I'm longing and, and, and how morose I am, and by my own repentance, I have to prove that I am worthy of what the Lord is offering, and Jesus says it's time to get rid of that. Maybe the old wine that you're holding on to is spiritual pride. I can do it on my own. And I'm good. And everybody will see how good I am because after all, I'm the one who always keeps all of the rules and everybody knows. And I can come to church and everybody will be impressed with me. And Jesus says it's time to get rid of it. I hope that this is not a diagnosis of you today. That you're unwilling to taste the new wine of Jesus because you think that what you've already got is better. I hope it's not the case with you that you'd rather cling to what is old and ready to be destroyed than to taste the newness of life that's found in Jesus. Today, if you hear the bridegroom's voice, do not harden your heart. There's a joy in knowing Jesus and in knowing that he's canceled your sin that can give you a peace that is deeper than your circumstances, deeper than your sin, deeper than the things that keep you from coming to him. And so if you've never trusted in him, trust in him today. Today is the day to taste and see that he is good. And if you have tasted in him, rejoice. That's what he tells us. Life with Jesus is worth celebrating. You can and you ought to be a cheerful person, not because your circumstances are great, but because God is good. Because Christ has come. The bridegroom has reconciled you to himself. God has proven his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that life with Jesus is worth celebrating. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you wholly in need of your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that you have sent the bridegroom to draw us to yourself with cords of love to our hearts and not just our outward actions to you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for all the rituals that we trust in apart from Christ. We thank you for uh, the disciplines that you give us that in truth draw us near to you, that humble us under your hand, the, even the table that we will come to in just a moment, this sign and this seal of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We thank you for some of the externals that you have given and you've called us to come and to participate in. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from ever trusting in these external things and not looking to Jesus Christ. Keep us always trusting in you. Keep us knowing more of Jesus and clinging to him and crying out and seeing that our sin is laid on him and his righteousness is given to us and there is peace with God. And so even as we come to this table, we pray that you would work joy in the lives of your people Redeemed by your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.